0: Hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop. How about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. This week on Queer Money, we get the pleasure of bringing you the stories of DJ Doran, a man who, along with his husband Joe, have gone from rags to riches, to rags to riches, and are on round four with a foray into media. We get to hear how they lived in Circus Circus in Vegas for $600 a month, how they fought a former Hell's Angel and his clan for a sailing magazine, and what it's like being in the military and coming out to his Catholic Italian mother. Get ready to laugh and learn what has made DJ Doran a success. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. Hey, let's see if this card goes through for that $8,000 drink. <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. Everybody wants to be a part of the in
1: crowd. Everybody wants to, to look good.
0: My, my decision was, I'm not a victim. I'm not going to stay and work someplace where this is a problem. Normally, we don't drink on Queer Money, but because we're talking about a subject that David is rather vanilla on. <laughs> um... Grab a glass of
1: wine, because you're listening to Queer Money with the Debt-Free Guys. This is the only show helping our community do more and be more by talking about money from the queer perspective. So uh, welcome back to another uh, edition of Queer Money. We uh, thank you for joining us. Today we're excited to talk with DJ Doran. He is... um, a multimedia conglomerate, and we're going to talk with him how he, uh, about how he uh, got to that point. Um, he's had an exciting career, and uh, we're going to talk about um, how he uh, went from A to B. So welcome, DJ. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on your show. It's Absolutely. Do you, um, would you mind giving us a, little, a brief introduction on, on, on who you are and what, what you're working on right now?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, I publish a the largest LGBTQ newspaper here in the Midwest. Uh, called The Eagle, formerly The Word. In addition to that, um, I also published Gaycation Magazine, which is a gay travel magazine distributed in the continental US, Canada, and Mexico. And then um, I'm the CEO of Rainbow Tourism, which is a booking site based out of Australia. And um, the CEO and owner of KWIR Radio and a um, LGBTQ internet radio network, and the host of my own show called the DJ Doran Show that airs every Monday from 6 to 8 p.m. Not okay. to mention, I'm a pilot, and um, and I am the chief pilot for Pride Flight 2018, which is a project where as I'm going to fly a restored DC-3, which is a World War II-era uh, transport plane, around the world on a Goodwill mission. Awesome. awesome.
1: So you have a lot of free time, huh? <laughs> I
2: have a lot of free time, yeah. Thank goodness I have a lot of good key people. Nice, yeah. That make that make me look good. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I have heard that's that's one of the keys to success and that's uh, one of the reasons why I keep John around because he <laughs> he definitely makes me look good. <laughs> There you go, John. (laughs) And that
1: too. That's a whole other show. Well, well, very cool. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, And we're going to talk about a little bit about all of that, I believe, on on this show. Um, But can I I just want to take a a step back? Um, So you've had a prior to delving into all of this. You, I think, had a 30-year career flying planes in the reserves. Is that correct? Uh, 23 years. 23 years. So, how yes. does someone go from the flying planes in, in the in the reserves to um, becoming a multimedia publisher? What was, the, what was the, What's the path that got you from A to B there? Oh, this is this is a story. I'm not sure we
2: can cover it all in in your time allotted, but I will tell you the the shortest version I can. When I um, first of all, I, was, I flew C-130s in um, in the Air Force, and uh, when I retired, I retired. I was reasonably young, and I I didn't know what to do, so I just started a whole second career. Well, and that was in hotels, and um, I didn't know anything about hotels, and my husband and I uh, read books on how to run hotels, and one day, I'm a morning person, I got to establish that right away, and Joe, my husband, is not. So I would get up early in the morning, and I'd go to this little greasy spoon down the street from our office, and I would have blueberry pancakes and sausage, and I would read the paper, and I would just relax, you know, and talk to the locals. Well, one day i was sitting there and the guy sitting behind me was talking to this other guy saying how he had this hotel on the coast of Oregon. Um, it was 75 keys rooms and uh, and he felt like his lawyer was stealing from him and not treating him right. And a whole bunch of big story. And I turned around. and I said, maybe I can help you. Um, four and a half weeks later, I own the hotel and he gave me a check for twenty five thousand dollars for the privilege.
0: Wow! wow. Jeez. And,
2: and, and Joe said to me, he said, do you even know anything about hotels? I said, no. I said, but I can learn. And that's what we did is I read every book. Like I, I didn't know any of the terminology like REVPAR, which is revenue per available room, or ADR, which is average daily rate. I read about all of that, and I said, book on how to run a hotel. And we taught ourselves how to run a hotel. What the guy didn't tell us was that he was in foreclosure with the builder who held the note. And the builder tried to kick me out and take the hotel back. And I said, no, we're not gonna do that. So I immediately filed chapter 11 to get the automatic stay. And I fought with him for over a year. The end of the year, I lost. I lost the case. But I had a cash flow of $100,000 a month for a year. and, And I had control of that. And so I learned a valuable lesson about how to run a hotel and made a ton of money in the process. And, um, and from there, we started buying distressed hotels and until we had about five sort of mid tier hotels, uh, in our portfolio across the country. And I got really cocky and, um, and I was like, Oh, let's, I want to, I want to develop this hotel condo project for $40 million in Bend, Oregon. Well, Joe begged me not to do it. And, um, so, therefore, I did it anyway. <laughs> and, and I put up all of, a lot of our money, half a million dollars that we had saved up in, for the escrow and for the soft cost, which would be the development cost, like creating a white paper for environmental impact and blah, 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 all that boring stuff. Long story short, I couldn't make the deal run. I lost all of our money. We lost our house, lost everything, everything except for I had about $6,000 left. And so I bought a coffee shop and I learned to become a barista <laughs> and, and I did that. And I, you cannot make this stuff up. I swear. <laughs> I, I, I did this and we were like, we're going to lose our house. You know, we live in a very big house. We're going to lose our house. And I tried to put off the foreclosure for as long as possible. It We weren't able to do that, but, with a laptop on the counter while I was making lattes and mochas, which by the way, I make pretty good. <laughs> and if, and if the economy ever crashed, I always, I know I have a, I have a career as a, as a barista. Plan B. Um, I, I bought a $4 million hotel in San Antonio and I did it by having the broker use his com- 6% commission on the purchase price as my down payment and had the owner carry back the rest of it. And and so I took over the hotel. It was in San Antonio, Texas. We we sold the coffee shop for fifteen thousand dollars. We lost our house. We went to San Antonio and we lived in the hotel and we ran the hotel for about a year until I was completely underfunded. Uh, but we made a good amount of money and I couldn't uh, meet the balloon payment that we had negotiated. And so I just walked away. I had the, there was no equity. There was no anything. But I made again about eighty to ninety thousand a month and. Cash flow, and so we were doing pretty good, and um, and I, I, I sort of determined that I had a knack for selling and buying and analyzing hotels. So a friend of ours in Chicago, (coughs) excuse me, invited us to come to Chicago and help him open a hotel brokerage, and he was a commercial broker in downtown Chicago. So uh, we did that, and within my first year, I sold two hotels. I made a good amount of commission. And, uh, but in 2009, this is key, 2009, as the economy was collapsing, mm-hmm. I said, oh no, we're not going to lose everything again. We sold everything. I quit the job, sold everything. Oh, by the way, let me backtrack a little bit. The last deal I had before I quit was a hotel in Keokuk, Iowa, out in the middle of nowhere. And it was an SBA guaranteed loan, right? So in 2009, when all of those secondary markets were crashing, the FBA pulled their loan commitment, which was unheard of, right? Mm-hmm. I did some Googling and found out that the FDA, that's the Food and Drug Administration, will guarantee a hotel loan in communities with less than 50000 And Marshfield, Wisconsin, which is where the hotel was, was less than 50000 And on top of that, they the borrower only had to have tangible uh, net equity of 10%, whereas the SBA required 20%. So now I restructured the deal a week before Christmas Eve, where the the now sell the buyer only had to put 10% down, and that the seller could now carry back a secondary note for 10% behind the first position on the bank. I closed the deal on Christmas Eve during a blizzard, and I had this poor girl in Marshfield driving around in a blizzard with chains on her car, <laughs> petrified yeah. for her life, hand-carrying the documents to be signed, notarized, and entered in. And that deal was done. And I realized then,
0: I'm done. I don't want to do this. <laughs> right. Interesting. It's after so, Chris... Oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I have so a thousand I,
1: questions. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds right.
0: to me that based on what you were saying, you have, uh, you obviously have a drive to keep on going. I think that some, most people would have given up after the first or second try. You've, you've had multiple tries and you just keep on going.
2: <laughs> well, you know, guys, the, I mean, the secret of any success, I, and I know it sounds cliche, but you just have to believe in yourself and you have to keep trying. But I'm going to tell you this. That deal taught me a lesson about, you know, you can get things done if you, if you just think on your feet and you're creative. After Christmas, after that Christmas, I walked up to Joe two weeks after we went back to work. We worked in the same office. He did commercial real estate for Dollar General, and I did hotels. And I said, Joe, I, I, I'm done. I, we just went through this horrific I, ordeal in Bend, and now with this whole thing in um, in uh, you know with this hotel. And uh, I, I said, I, I want a break. And I saw this thing about these people that sail around the world. And so this is i swear to god this is how it happened i walked up to his desk and i said i want to sell everything and buy a sailboat
1: but you didn't know how to sell a boat though right
2: no i never even owned a boat <laughs> and he and his first comment to me was do you even know how to sail and i said no but how hard can it be within a month we sold everything we sold our penthouse apartment on lakeshore drive in waveland in chicago so we had like Twenty apartment sales you know where people came in and just bought all your junk we sold everything and I rented a van and Joe and me and our 175 pound bull mastiff fang. <laughs> we drove from Chicago to San Francisco to pick up our boat and once I signed the contract for the boat we went on a family vacation and um, we're in to Hawaii with Joe's family and we're sitting at a table at dinner and we printed out pictures of the boat and we gave it to everyone and we said, we bought a boat and we're going to live on it and we're going to sail around the world. There was dead silence. Right. <laughs> it, was hyster- it was hysterical. And Joe's mom uh, said, you don't even like the water. And um, But we, after vacation, we went and picked up our boat and we lived on it for three and a half years and we taught ourselves how to sail. We never sailed around the world, but we made it to Mexico and we did some other stuff and was great. However, I got bored, and I had the opportunity to buy a publishing company, and this is where it all started. And so I'm going to take a break here. So if you want to ask some questions, this would be the perfect time.
1: Well, absolutely, <laughs> and to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so um, the first thought that I have is that a lot of people say that um, you know some people are lucky and some people aren't. So I want to that's know, bullshit. when you're when you were sitting in that, that coffee shop and you were hearing that man talk about um, his, his hotel, what made you think that this was an opportunity for you?
2: Well, first of all, it's a great question. And I'm going to tell you the reason why I said BS. Sorry, I swore a little but I'm from New York, so <laughs> yeah, okay. I have we're to remember that. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, uh, luck, so many people have said, oh, you're lucky this or you're lucky that. And I, I really get irritated. Luck has nothing to do with it. I work seven days a week. 10 to 14 hours a day, you know, I bust my butt, and so does Joe. To achieve, We busted our butt to, to make that work. Neither one of us come from rich families or we have, you know, rich contacts at Harvard or anything. We had to bust our butt, and we had to figure out how to dogleg our way into every deal and then try and hopefully hold on to it. And so, so the lesson that I, I learned from my parents is, you know, you keep at it. And and if you can't figure out how to go through the wall, figure out how to go over it or under it or around it, but it can be done. And the other lesson that I think is paramount is you have no idea what the other person's circumstances are, so you cannot be afraid to ask for what you want. And so many deals that I've gotten, I, I I've been successful at because I dared to ask. And and some people, they're defeated in their mind before they even begin. They 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 fight this. They waged this battle of, oh, they'll never go for that or I, I they'll not do this. And so, therefore, they don't even ever do anything. Right. And, and I sat behind this guy. I had no idea whether or not I could do a deal. I had no idea about hotels. I, didn't, I had no idea of anything. After he initially said, okay, well, I'm willing to talk, I immediately went to the office and I Googled and started researching about hotels. And how to structure deals and what to look for and what are the warning signs. And I taught myself.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Just listening to your story and your explanation here reminds me of two things. One, it reminds me of, and I used this quote earlier today, um, Lisa Nichols uh, has has a story that she tells. She's a a, a transformational speaker and she says that uh, um, quitters never win, winners never quit. And that's really it sounds like that's what happened has happened throughout your life is you said i'm I'm never going to give up. And then I think that the other thing is that we had a podcast with Chad Nash, and he said that 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 statistics say that one in ten businesses is, is successful. So most people try once and then they fail. Well, what they don't tell you is that if you try 10 businesses, you're going to find one that's successful. <laughs> and it sounds right. like you've, you have kept on moving along trying to find that one or multiple now that are going to be successful. And that's the path that you're, you're, you're bound and determined to be on is that path to success. Well, you know, guys, I, uh, even as
2: far back when I was a
0: kid, I was a sickly
2: kid. And I had a pinhole in my eardrum, and everyone told me, you'll never be a pilot. And, you know, they want to project their fears of failure or their fears in general onto you. My dad said, you know, if you want to be a pilot, then you go be a pilot. You know, you make it happen for yourself. So you know what I did? I studied how they administer hearing tests. And I learned to anticipate those sounds, you know, that you hear. Mm -hmm. And I would anticipate them. And the minute I thought, even if I didn't hear it, I thought that, okay, from a pattern standpoint that I should be hearing a sound any second, I'd press that button. <laughs> so you and, lied. And I lied, and I passed. And so the, the thing is, is that's what I'm saying, is if you you want to achieve something, you can find a way to do it. Uh, you do a little bit of homework on, on your things. But I've always believed in education. I've always believed that if as long as someone has the power and the ability to read and understand and apply what they've read to their life circumstances – You can do anything. Anything that you want. And within reason. I'm not sure about nuclear physics or or (laughs) things like that. But in general. And so I've never been hungry. You know, like uh, I've never like felt like I I couldn't fend for myself over the years. Although I've had some you know, we've been dead broke. I mean top ramen broke. And and I I just think that I, I think that it's it's a matter of of fighting the urge of other people's fear that they want to project onto you about failure or potential failure or risk. You know, I'm, I wouldn't, I don't want to do that. You need to get, you know, many times I heard you need to get a job, you know, you just get a regular job and a regular paycheck. But that's, I, I have, I'm 56 years old. I've never done that ever, you know, and I've always done my own thing and made it work. And sometimes it worked really well and others,
1: not so well. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, I, and I'm thinking you could probably have 6.5 billion people sitting in that same coffee shop and complain saying they've never been presented an opportunity. And here you are, happened over here, somebody talking about hotels, and you think I'm going to see if I can make something of this. And I don't think a lot. And a, and a lot of people would would have sat in that same room and said, I've never been presented an opportunity. So
0: we would I, never even have gone to that. Right. Complaint. Right. But well, it's, you know, they, they often say times you hear the saying luck, uh, luck is when preparedness meets opportunity. Well, it's, that's it's, exactly right. I think it, well, it, and it's, and it's when preparedness meets opportunity and the action is taken because there are right. a lot of people who are prepared and the opportunity comes along, but they allow some sort of inner, uh, um, what we, demon. What, demon. Right. Or, or, uh, or, or limiting belief inside of them to say, Oh, I can't do that. Or they allow a, an outer limiting belief from someone else. Like you said, somebody else saying, Oh, we can't do that. Or we shouldn't risk it. So it's when the action is taken. And obviously, you know, just you turning around and saying, Hey, let's talk about this was the initiation of that action.
2: And right. I'm going to tell you this. Uh, I'll tell you this. some people say, well, how do you do that you know, how do you become that fearless? It's like, there is no fearlessness. It is absolute bone jarring fear, but you overcome that and you put it aside and you say, I'm going to do this and that. And once you take that first few steps, the pathway becomes a lot more clear, you know, like things open up and you say, oh, now I get it. Or now I, you know, this doesn't work or what have you. But one thing that you said that is really, I think, extremely important, I think for people is let's. I always looked at myself and I know you gonna find this hard to believe, but when I was a kid, I didn't speak very much. I stuttered, I stuttered. So I didn't speak. And I, I found solace in books and in reading and things. It was way before the internet. (laughs) And, um, you know, now that, you know, the internet we can't live without, but the point of that is, is that here I am, I grew up in a huge Italian family with five brothers and one sister. My dad was a policeman in the Bronx. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. My family and everyone that I grew up with smoked. They were grossly homophobic. You know, they had no idea. I'm I'm growing up and, you know, I liked school. I never got in any trouble. You know, my father used to say, I don't even know how to sort of relate to you. But we had a close relationship. And he died very early, uh, very young. But the thing that I learned from that was, that when I came out, I didn't come out until I was 39. You know, I could, I was in the Air Force. I tried to run away and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be in a relationship. My pe- family is never going to accept me. And um, I joined the Air Force thinking I'm just going to travel the world and I'm going to do all this stuff. And I'll never have to deal with that. I'll never have to deal with my mother saying, when are you going to settle down and get married? You know, like she did for everybody else. She's Sicilian, by the way. My, she, she's <laughs> Sicilian. Well, Sicilian, my dad was Irish. Oh, and, oh yeah that's a whole other show yeah but, you should have had a yeah, big family yeah and that's all they did was procreate and <laughs> um and uh and you know so i was like i saw no pathway for me that was going to be good none whatsoever so i joined the air force well once i joined the air force i just everyone said well you're a good looking guy you have a flight to your chick magnet why aren't you you know doing this and that oh i'm married to the air force i used to say and i would travel I, i'd accept every mission just to get out, get out. And I could use it as an excuse. Well, the, the the other side of that is that when my career started to wind down, well, first of all, in the middle of my career, I was very cognizant of how I acted and where I went, because you could be kicked out then for conduct unbecoming. It was that nebulous. Right. So, you know, I would, be, I never went to any gay bars. I never, you couldn't go to any protests or pride or anything, not like today. And um, so I was extremely closeted. Well, as I got into my career, I thought, "How am I going to make it 20 years?" Well, I did. I made it to 20 years, and and um, you know, I just was very fortunate that nobody outed me because somebody could have just said, "Hey, I saw Captain um, Doran at this gay club," and that's all it would take for me to get brought up and um, and discharged dishonorably. By the way, doesn't matter.
1: Right.
2: And um, so when I when my career was winding down, I realized I couldn't live that double life anymore. I couldn't. I mean, I couldn't. My family, you know, was very close. We all do a lot of things. And and I knew I had to say it. And I, I'll never forget that coming out period where I, here I was a decorated um, a military pilot, um, a very successful in a lot of things and, and with a lot of accolades. And I'm thinking, I'm going to go tell my mom that I'm gay and she's going to completely disown me. And my my brothers and my sister are not going to want to hang out with me. I have twenty one nieces and nephews. I'm going to lose all of that. But I I had no choice. And so when I did, and my mother said, "Oh, that? Well, you know, we've known that for years. We were just waiting for you to tell us." It was <laughs> wow. it was it was a huge relief. And then um, she gave me the best advice of my life. And I'm going to tell you this. And I think this is advice for any person that's listening. Is when I came out, I didn't. I said to her, I said, I don't really know how to be gay. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how I'm going to now integrate this into my life, you know? And she said, well, I don't really know anything about that. And I don't, I, I can't really tell you that I understand being gay and whatever, that's your thing. But I love you, you're my son, and I don't care. But I will tell you this. If you concentrate on being a good human being, first and foremost, then everything you do, everything you are, everything you're involved in, will be filtered through that and you'll be okay. Wow. And that's Awesome. And that's what helped me to transition uh, to transition from from being closeted to being complete to being out and it was once I had the support of my family I really didn't care what anybody else thought quite frankly.
1: Right. Right, right. I was going to say I love the juxtaposition of uh, for all intents and purposes a, a war hero being afraid to tell his mom <laughs> you know that he's gay oh. <laughs> guys you have no idea i was soaking wet now i knew my mom
2: loved me and there was no question i mean she was fo- four foot eleven and three quarters and you know you go to her house and she's like oh. first thing when i walked in she said are you all right are you in trouble that's the first thing she said to me i said no i'm fine i'm not in trouble she goes are you eating i said yes i'm eating like i always eat you know and um, and I got to tell you a funny story about that before I go into the rest of this is when I was in the Air Force uh, as a younger younger uh, airman and I'd come home and um, I, my mom would always put like a, a bag and she'd put like spaghetti sauce and bread and food in it and canned goods and things. And I said, Mom, I have food in my house. I don't need food. Well, she goes, oh, just take it. And she would always say, just take it just in case. Like, I don't know, there was going to be a zombie apocalypse on my way back to my house or something. You know, at least, thank God I had sauce and some and some Italian bread, just in case. So uh, but when I went back to my base and, and one time, and one of my friends there, you know, was telling me, well, you know, my parents, I don't even hear from them. They don't do anything like that. It clicked for the first time. And I realized how fortunate I really was to have that. And I never ever complained. I would take the bag, I'd put it in the car, and I'd bring it to the house, and I'd put the stuff in the in the cabinet, and I would. And that's how I knew that my mom loved me. Mm-hmm. Right. That's how she demonstrated it. But I never complained about it. And now that she's gone, you know, I miss that sort of stuff. She never forgot a birthday. Hell, she used to send me happy Groundhog Day cards <laughs> in the mail wherever <laughs> I was. Nice. And um, and so it. I'll, I'll never forget, or I I don't think I could ever. I think how she helped me transition from that, from being closeted to coming out, is something that saved my life. And I'm telling you, I swept 30 pounds of sweat, on the way from Stanford, Connecticut, to her house in upstate New York. When I was telling her, and I had practiced it and practiced it, I got there. And she was all panicky, like I was in trouble or something. And then it was such an anticlimactic uh, right. coming out that it just was like, oh, I just wasted 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could have had it so easy and just think of, you know, I could have had boyfriends and all of that, but I did I didn't, um I didn't do any of that. And I know she knew, but it's just, when you're closeted, you just don't think like anybody else.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: Now I want to tell you that story that, um, so, after all of this, I got out of the Air Force and I, and I lost all my money with this hotel thing and, and everything. We bought the sailboat and we're on the sailboat and um, living the good life. I mean, we hardly wore long pants. You know, we lived on the boat in San Francisco and East Bay and we would motor over to um, Angel Island or Sausalito and just hang out. I mean, we're living the good life. Nice. A lot of work, but a good life. During that time, um, I met, this is how I got into publishing, I met a really interesting character called Bob Bitchin. <laughs> I'm not lying, that's his name. <laughs> his real name was Robert Lipkin. He was six foot six, 300 pounds, with tattoos from his neck all the way down. An ex-biker, Hells Angel, he was a bodyguard for Evil Knievel, and blah, 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 blah. He had a, a magazine, a sailing magazine. And he was a horrible, horrible business person, but a great creative person. So I am talking to him, and he's like, you should buy my company. And Joe is like, DJ, absolutely not. I, you, I do not want – no, absolutely not. Therefore – You bought it. I get it anyway. <laughs> yeah, so he's a straight guy, right? Straight. And, you know, uh, the magazine was a sailing magazine and on every cover was a big buxom woman in a scantily clad bikini. And we used to call the magazine big babes, big busty babes on boats. <laughs> that was what we called it. So Joe begged me not to buy the company. And I said, you know, we're living the good life on a sailboat. We've had, you know, it's, it's, we're enjoying ourselves. I therefore did it anyway. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so i because the deal was trying to make the deal is what the attraction was for me. So I made the deal and it was great. And we were turning the company around. We were doing a really good job. Well, because we were turning the company around, he now wanted the the magazine back. And Ugh. when I refused, he tried to intimidate me. I refused. Cause I think he thought, you know, there's two gay guys, you know, I'm a big biker dude and all my big biker friends and whatever. Um, I said, no, And um, he tried to take the company by getting all of the employees, all of his old employees who we kept employed, turned against us and went with him. So what did I do? I ripped all the computers and servers out of the wall because he had access to all of our intellectual property. And I summarily closed the magazine down at all. And then we went to court and um, we fought where I won, but I lost on the... And the court of public opinion, because he was, I mean, gay bashing us and his followers were giving us death threats and this and that. And, you know, he was saying these two gay guys stole my magazine and blah, blah, blah. It was a big mess. Of course, you know, I've had to live with, I told you so from that point on for many yeah. years, from Joe, <laughs> but you know,
1: I would never do that remember. to David. No.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and So we've been there 14 together, 14 years. He doesn't say too much about it now, but Trust me, I had to listen to my share of it, <laughs> but it was a very bad experience—a horror, a horrific experience—and I'd never been bullied on social media like that before as an adult. And you're powerless. People can say whatever they want. You cannot stop them. And they, they had what – the magazine had a forum. And so people would go on the forum and make all sorts of homophobic things. And they would tweet things. And they, they got our families' uh, contact information and harassed our families. And even though the truth was out there, I finally reacted because our whole thought was let's take the high road and um, not respond to any of that. That was a big mistake. It just gave the impression of implied guilt and blah, blah, blah. It was just a big mess. The lesson I learned from that was that we can survive a lot of stuff. Yeah, Much more than you, you can take a lot more than you possibly think you can, you know? And that people um, can be, although people can be very mean and they can be very hurtful, there were tons of good people that rallied around us and made us feel safe and supported us. And so... We went back and stayed with family for a few months. We, again, lost everything, lost our boat, lost everything. Um, went back to Oregon and I went to work for a construction company and I just did labor work and we saved our money and did that for a little bit. And then we bought a motorhome, like a vintage motorhome, a Bluebird Lodge. Have you ever seen those?
1: Yeah, um, I have. Is this what uh, Priscilla
2: Yes, Priscilla. Oh, yeah. I didn't know about Priscilla.
0: No, we've done a little reading.
2: Yeah. So we bought that thing and we just left. And we just drove across the United States for a year. And I said, let's just talk to other gay people and let's see what, let's just explore. And we did. We drove across the top of the United States, went down to Florida, drove across the southern part of the United States. Um, we got to Las Vegas and some guy came up and knocked on the door and said, I want to buy your motorhome. <laughs> and I, I said, okay, I'll only accept cash. And he and he goes, how much you want for it? And I told him, we paid $9,000 for it. I told him 15000 A week later, he showed up with $15,000 in cash. <laughs> wow. We sold the motorhome. And we moved into Circus Circus
1: get out
2: <laughs> no, is, well we went to circus circus and we for the first week we just hung out right neither one of us are big gamblers but we hung out but what we found out is that if we if we stayed in the hotel from monday through friday and checked out on friday we could stay there for 19 dollars a day <laughs> and we would go out to the outer uh, area and stay there for the weekend and then we would check back in on monday and stay for 19 dollars a day well <laughs> Every time we checked in, we got the whole coupon book with the buy one get one free oh, yeah. meals and the, and the slot play and all of that. So we ended up staying at Circus Circus for a month, <laughs> and for six hundred dollars is what we paid. Wow. And you uh, have to deal with the screaming kids on the weekends, you know, and mm. all of that. But we on the weekends, um, we would check out and we'd see all these families come in with their little kids, and we're like, "All right, we're out of here." <laughs> right.
1: so,
2: during the week, not a soul. It was awesome. Well, while we were staying at Circus Circus, I said, you know, I'm not going to buy anybody else's company. I'm tired of buying other people's problems. I said, let's just launch our own. Six weeks from the date, um, we moved into the hotel. We were there for the one month. Six weeks from the date that we moved into the hotel, we created, came up with the concept, created Gaycation Magazine, launched it, and got it um, a national distribution deal. With, uh, through a distributor and launched our first issue just in time for Pride. And that magazine is now over two years old. And, um, and so we did that and we would create that magazine from our laptops in various hotels or even from um, our car where we'd go into and we'd park in Home Depot's parking lot and then we would use their Wi-Fi. <laughs> and then and then do the do the heavy lifting for the the we use what's called indesign to lay out the magazine and um and so from that oh uh, we eventually ended up so let's go back to new york i hadn't seen my family in a while we went and we um got a small log cabin on 57 acres and it was great uh, you know i became a what do you call it not a what do you call those gay people now the gay guys that look like a uh, log Logging
1: guy.
0: Lumberjacks. Lumberjacks. <laughs> yeah, lumber
1: You had your tight Levi's on and your. Uh, yeah, uh, no, you didn't even have that. Flannel I mean, shirts. I would, you know,
2: I'd, I'd walk out in my sweats and my work boots and I would chop wood or do whatever. And Joe's like, okay, this is not going to last very long. But uh, we stayed there for a year. And one winter was awesome. And we had tons of snow. And uh, during that time, Joe says, okay, I don't even want to tell you this, but there's a newspaper for sale in Indianapolis.
1: <laughs> wow. I'm I surprised think, he said that.
2: <laughs> yeah. He was like, he told me, he goes, I do not even want to tell you. So he, said, he goes, you probably, you might want to, you can call maybe. Cause I told him I wanted to be in news. Like I wanted a legitimate newspaper. Called up the, the guy that owned it, uh, he was a creeper, still is a creeper, and he would talk about having a thruple, which I never even heard that term in my <laughs> life until I met with him with young boys. And I said, you know, I don't really care about any of that, but I want to buy the newspaper. He wanted 250000 Um, I looked at the financials. I said, here's the deal. I'm going to offer you 30000 You have 24 hours to decide. And I didn't think he would take it. Well, he did. Wow. So I bought the paper on April 1st, uh, just as RIFRA, which is the SB 101 bill here in Indianapolis, which was very homophobic and bigoted and all of that big brouhaha. Mm-hmm. And so we were in Los Angeles at a conference for gaycation for the IGLTA, and everyone's boycott Indiana, boycott Indianapolis, blah, 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 blah. And um, I told Joe, I said, we're moving to Indianapolis. I need to go to Indianapolis and turn this paper around. I need to take the lead on it. And that's how I ended up here. And so from that, it just sort of like now we had vacation. We had the newspaper. It was a lot of work to turn them around, but but um, uh, we were here for about two months. And at and this again is no. This is exactly how it happened. 3 a.m. I woke up, and I was like, I want to fly around the world. I put <laughs> a yellow sticky note on my computer screen, and I when I got up in the morning, I told Joe. I said. I said, I wanna fly around the world. We need to do something that brings a positive focus to the Indianapolis gay community with all, and Indianapolis with all this negativity from Riffraff, You know, Governor Pence, which is now Trump's running mate, was right. a And And um, he goes, what the hell are you talking about? And I said, I wanna fly around the world and I don't wanna do it in a regular plane. I wanna do something like that only a gay guy would do. I said, I want a World War II airplane with rainbow stripes on the wings.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Three weeks
2: later, I was in Ensenada, Mexico, and I put a deposit on a DC3. <laughs> wow. And so, that's how Pride Flight started.
1: So, I want to take a step back. So, you're in Vegas, you're in you're living in circus circus. Um, your selling magazine kind of went under. Um was taken away oh, from you.
2: Kind of went under. It was a spectacular failure.
1: <laughs> so, but th- 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 there again, you know, so it takes me back to that Chad Nash quote, you know, if you're not winning, you're learning. So you obviously learned enough from that experience and decided not to give up and thought, I'm just going to create a magazine from my laptop. And that segued into vacation and that segued into um, uh, the word.
2: Right. I'm going to tell you something that is probably the most important thing I learned. When we were going through the devastation of the sailing magazine, falling apart around our ears and people, you know, being very vicious and accusing us of a lot of different things, I thought we're never going to survive this and it's never going to get better. And there's nothing good that's going to come out of this. This is absolutely patently the worst experience ever. Hmm. Looking back on it now, I am so happy that that happened because if that did not happen, We would never have started Gaycation. I would have never have learned the lessons I've learned. I would have never – we would never have been prepared for the things that we are now doing. And that experience toughened me up. Uh, And, I mean, I think I was already pretty tough, but that really opened my eyes to – to be, you know having to be vigilant about our brand about who we are and the narrative and the other parts of business that people don't always think about when they're in business and uh, you know to me it's it sucked at the time we lost everything but but truthfully it, you have two choices you can wallow in self-pity and you can say okay i'm not meant to ever do anything and never do anything again or you can say okay I'm not going to do that again. I'm, I've learned I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to be in that position again. And you try and move forward, and that's what happened. And I'll tell you, some of the decisions that I'm making now and the opportunities that are uh, uh, you know, in front of me now, uh, I am much better able to, to analyze whether or not I can do that or take advantage
0: of those opportunities than I would have been if I hadn't gone through that. It's interesting. I, I I see a meme from time to time online that says that uh, all of you, all of the experiences in your life are, have led up to this moment, and it's clear that that that's what your belief is: is that all those experiences had led to that your the moments that you had to make various decisions, and now you are able to look back and reflect on all those various experiences and constructively use them for your benefit. Uh, today for making either better decisions or more informed decisions or helping other people do the same. That, that's exactly right.
2: And the other part of it is, is—is, you know, you may learn the lesson, but you still have to deal with the consequences. You know, the consequences don't go away. And, you know, and there, there are always going to be um, people that will feel cheated or feel um, damaged because of the decisions that you made and you can't change the past you can only say, okay, I'm going forward, you know, and I'm going to try and, you know, do something differently. I'm a big believer. And I I truly believe this. And and that is, if you you make your own reality, and you can't blame anyone for your failures, just like you can't depend on anyone for your successes for yourself. And another thing, too, I'm gonna tell you, my mom was a really big influence on me in later years. And one of the things she said later on in life, and I was struggling with my identity and um, she said listen uh, it's if you don't love yourself if you don't like yourself if you don't believe in yourself then how can you possibly expect anybody else to and I've always learned that that my own inner voice is the strongest Um, source of my inspiration and confidence it is I don't draw that from other people's acceptance or or any or good or bad I I draw it from myself and and you know and I'm sure you guys have experienced this in your life you know like you've met people they they're so codependent that they think that their sips their self-worth or their value comes from someone else's approval or this or that when you, are, when you can internalize that and you become independent unto yourself, then you always are uplifted. You are always wanted. You are always loved. And now, you haven't seen or met my husband, but he's very good looking, right? He's, I, he's the cute one. But <laughs> because of my personality, I attract people and I always am flabbergasted about that. And one of the things that he says to me, he says, it's because of your inner confidence. It, it starts from inside and exudes outwardly from there. And no matter how bad things get, no matter how good things are, when things are bad, I go to that safe place and I know that that is mine. When things are good, I feel blessed, you know, and I share that. And I think that that is, I think that is the secret of, um, you know, being happy. Don't attach money. To anything you know I'll tell you true um, when you're young and this is something that would be a great show for you guys you know society tells us that we need to buy a house and have a car and be in debt up to our eyeballs and so <laughs> you make a hundred like we were making really good money in Chicago and I I said I only have five months if I lost my job today five months we'd be in deep shit <laughs> and um and and I thought this is ridiculous do you know that when we bought the boat, we had no TV for a year? Um, we, we had limited space, so we didn't have the fancy wardrobe or the tuxedos or the things that we all thought we absolutely had to have. We lived very simply. We were absolutely debt-free, and I'm here to tell you that today, I'm completely debt-free. I own everything that I have outright, except for my house, which I owe very little on, and um, I don't drive a new car. I drive a 2002 Dodge Durango. Joe drives a 2003 Audi. We have no debt whatsoever. If we can't afford it, we don't have it. And that is the key to me for real sustainable happiness. Now, there is good debt when you're in business. There is there is such a thing as good debt, leverage debt and what have you. But on a personal level, no debt.
1: Yeah, yeah You're, you're preaching to the choir here. Right. I, I want to take a step back if you can. Um, so in those deepest, darkest moments, when people are saying mean, vicious things about you, your, your company's uh, somebody's trying to steal your company away from you, how do you reconnect with your internal belief about yourself? How do you stay centered and focused? Do you have any exercises or practices?
2: Yeah, I'm going to tell you. Um, first of all, when people say the meanest things, like down to your soul, like you're an evil, vile person, and you're this, and you're that, and you deserve to die, and and then layer that with the homophobic component component, and then layer that with, um, you know, just the general hatred. You, you start to question how you view yourself. And I remember saying to myself, am I that? Maybe I don't see that. I used to ask Joe, am I, is that me? Am I, am I that bad person that they say? Is that who I am? And what helped for me is quiet like I used to go and take a walk and I would go, you know, we were in Oregon and I'd go out into the woods and I would sit there and I would contemplate God. I would contemplate my faith and I'd contemplate who I am. And I would look at internally and I'd say, okay, I want to look at myself without any preconceived filter and really face the ugliness. If there is ugliness about me and then, and see if I could change it. And, and, and I hate to say, I don't want to sound, um, Um, I don't want to sound overconfident, but what happened is it reaffirmed that I knew who I was, that they could take, they could say all these different things, but they couldn't take away what I believed about myself. And that's what I held on to. And, and listen, we all make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. The harder and forgiveness is part of life. You know, you have to be able to forgive and, and and so I allowed myself the luxury of saying, "Hey, I'm only human. I did make some mistakes. I forgive you d j That's what I would say. I forgive you. God forgives me, I forgive me. God forgives us, and we oftentimes are worse about forgiving ourselves and Once I forgave myself, I understood that the consequences were still there. I mean, these people still hated me, you know and and all of that, but I found like peace in that in some weird way. Now, the secondary thing is I, I'm a very social person. I had a, a very large group of friends and acquaintances. It taught me about keeping my inner circle tight and that inner circle can protect you when, when things get really bad. And Joe's family and my family, although they understood what we were going through and they were drawn into it to a degree, I remember one of them saying, we know who you are. We know, we know who you are. And that was, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps remembering that because I'm reliving that moment, that feeling of empowerment, that feeling of safety that, um, that I felt and that Joe felt then, and that allowed us to recover and regroup.
1: Nice. So you, so you went to a a quiet place. Is, do you, is that a a regular practice of yours? Do you do a version of meditation?
2: Um, so, um, I'm a very early morning person. So I get up like at five o'clock every morning between five, five thirty, it depends how I feel, but no later than five thirty. I get up at five thirty. I like to have coffee. I don't wanna hear the phone. I don't read the news the any the internet. I don't watch television. I sit out like this morning and I watch the most spectacular sunrise you can possibly imagine. The sky was fire red and and blues and all sorts of cool colors. And I I no matter how busy I am, I give myself that time in the morning to it's DJ time. It's, it's reflective time. I don't let anything take that away from me.
0: Nice.
2: And that is absolutely imperative.
0: Yeah. It seems like that is uh, a common practice among individuals who are successful is that they take that opportunity to be quiet and cl- maybe, uh, allow their brain to, to slow down a bit
2: and, and rest is an even better work.
0: Yeah. Well, and I, I love the fact that you were talking about the 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 sunrise. Uh John and I are also early risers, although it, it, it had it has taken us a a little bit of effort to do it on a regular basis. But um that's one of the things that I love too. Uh we, we have a view of the mountains and downtown and when the sun rises it reflects off of the mountains and the buildings downtown and it's beautiful to just watch the watch the sun come up and again it's a i think it's a way of us connecting with our true selves when we have an opportunity to just be quiet
2: absolutely and i think that um you owe it to yourself you know during the day as you can imagine there are lots of pressures on my time and so and i give into that you know that's the nature of of the business that i'm in but first thing in the morning that is my time that is my sitting in my robe i have my my coffee um, you know, it's my quiet time and to enjoy it. And I love the sound. There are no cars. There are no, you know, anything. It's so quiet. And to me, that's what sets the tone for, for my day. And when I miss that, it is a, it is absolutely noticeable. It has <laughs> a noticeable a, impact on my day.
0: Completely yeah. agree with you there. So I, I have a question, uh, DJ, it, it's obvious that you have gone from success to failure, And success to failure and success to failure. And this has happened a number of times that you, I think in the conversation, you told us at least twice, maybe three times that you were completely broken, had absolutely nothing. Yes. What was the inner conversation in your head that said, this is not permanent? I think that a lot of people, when they go from a a high level of success or uh, an emotional high, they crash, whether that's because of outside influences or financial influences or whatever, they oftentimes spend a lot of time wallowing in a, a, a level of despair because they can't immediately see that there is the potential for them to get right back up to where they were at before. What was how, tell us a little bit about those kinds of conversations or what you did to keep yourself in the spirit of I am going to get get it all back.
2: Well, very good question. Um here's here's the long and short of that is when you're on the high, you are, you know, you it is intoxicating when people are constantly telling you how great you are and how su- successful you are and whatever. When you fail, it is absolutely the most loneliest time of your life people won't return your calls, friends who you thought were your friends were really not. Um, It's a very lonely road to the bottom. And when I, you know, Joe and I did this together. So it was never really me by myself during most of this. And we relied on each other. And we had a very strong faith and, and belief in each other, which was empowering to a degree. But still, you know, your world is crumbling around you. You wake up one day and you see the foreclosure notice on your front door and you're like, I, I, there's no way I can't, I can't get out of this. There's no way I can get out of this. And at some point you, you, you just accept that things are going to happen and you're going to ride that, that, that lightning bolt to the, (laughs) to the bottom. And when you get to the bottom and I was at the bottom, I remember thinking we have a hundred dollars, we have a hundred dollars. And most of that was in quarters. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I was like, the thing that ran through my mind was like, okay, I need $20 for laundry. You know, you you don't think in the terms of years. Now you think in terms of days, you know, like what do I have to do today? And, and, and you're like, well, I don't, I totally, how did, how did this happen? It took me so long to get to the top and it took me, you know, it seemed like seconds to crash to the bottom. And, and I think that the one thing that say that I can say about me is I've always prided myself on my intellect and on my ability to like read and understand. So to me, if this didn't work, obviously somebody can has written about this and how they handle it and I would learn. And I would learn from the other people. Now with when the Pine Bridge project failed, um, and that's what one in Bend, and, and that's what I'm talking about. We had a hundred dollars. We lived in this big house. We sold all of our furniture. I think we had um, lawn furniture in the living room. <laughs> wow. We were sitting on air mattresses because we sold all of our furniture to to keep going. And I, when you hit bottom, you're like, okay, you know, okay, I'm gonna go get a job. I'm gonna just try and then you think to myself, you think to yourself, who's gonna hire a 40-year-old or 45 year old, you know, overqualified, you know, and I'd be willing to do anything, work at McDonald's. And, um, and it's very humbling. What helped me was once the, I accepted that, that there was nothing I could do because you constantly are trying to figure out how can I stop this? I can figure this out. I can, at the last minute, I can figure this out. Once you finally accept that, okay, there's nothing we can do. Then you start planning on, okay, I'm going to hit bottom. How long am I going to stay there? Because there is a wallowing period. There really is a, you know, you're, you feel sorry for yourself and you wallow in that. And, um, you know, people tell you, you know, the, I told you so people come out of the woodwork and I warned you about that. And I did this and, you know, you have to, you have to deal with all that. But after I got through all of that, I'm like, okay, now let's just see what's out there. And that's what I would do. I just was like, look, and I would just cast this wide net and something would be stuck in it. And I say, okay, let's try it. And I'll tell you a funny story. You'll laugh at this. I, I went to negotiate for a hotel one time. We had five hundred and eighty dollars in the bank. I, I'll never forget it. Um, this was after the 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 project died, and um, and we didn't have a car. It got repossessed. And so I took the bus. And I, you know, I'm not really big on mass transit, but I took the bus in Portland, Oregon, and I had it drop me off two blocks away from where my meeting was and I was in a suit and tie and I had my briefcase and I walked into the meeting heel to toe if you you, you may not know this but in the military they teach you to walk heel to toe mm-hmm. so it almost looks like a Nazi goose stepping in, sort of in a way but it's heel to I walked into the meeting heel to toe with the banker the broker and the and the owner and I immediately went to the head of the table I sat at the head of the table <laughs> and I said I said okay let's get started and And I negotiated that deal and I got that deal. And I walked back and I told Joe, I said, I need, I need to, I need the bus schedule because I knew how to get there, but I didn't know (laughs) how to get home. And I was, you know, I was sort of like, I don't know how to get, I had no money. No, we didn't have any credit cards. All that was canceled. And so um, I ended up taking uh, the bus home. And the, and by the time I got home, because going there, it was, um, what do you call it? You know, like a straightaway, Mm -hmm. it was fast. But going home, it stopped every 500 feet, it felt like. And it took two hours to get home. And I'm in a suit and tie. I get home, and he goes, how'd it go? I said, I don't know. I said, I'll hear from the broker tomorrow. The broker emailed me the next morning. He said, he's accepted your offer. And within a week, we had control of the hotel. And we had no money. But you know what saved us? i re- I recognize that hotels because I did my homework they collect money for advanced reservations and they pay their taxes in arrears so at the closing, I got a check for eighteen thousand hmm. dollars and that's 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 what I'm talking about, whereas no matter how how much you get at the bottom if you close your mind to any opportunity, you close those opportunities from reaching you. I would never have known about that. I Googled that. I Googled that hotel. I found that hotel on LoopNet, you know, <laughs> a real estate thing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, uh, and that's how I found it. So, so I just sort of, I just never closed
1: those doors permanently. So I have a couple of questions. <laughs> There's so many questions. We're never going to get to door multimedia at this point. Um, so it sounded to me when, when you were talking about the, the the, riot, the lightning bolt back down to earth, that um a critical step was you surrendering to your situation yes and you know, there's there 's that spiritual hymn you know, I surrender all how do, do you find that that's a critical step when ev- any time that somebody goes back down to earth or crashes yeah
2: they, you have to be realistic. So many people have this fantasy that they're going to, you know, some white knight is going to come in and they're going to get that home run deal as we used to call it or what have you. But there does come a point when you tried everything and, and the, the wall is coming up and you're not going to stop it. So now you just prepare yourself to hit the wall. And, and, and that's a sobering moment, quite frankly, you know, And, and, and I think that I have a, I have a very strong faith, you know, Seguing off to a different subject for a second, a lot of people that i met and have known over the years, you know, they're so surprised that I'm a Christian, that I've accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And because I'm gay, and they think that somehow I'm excluded from that, you know, that I'm excluded from that. But I have a strong faith. And my, my whole thing was that, okay, this is transitory. That this is this is a temporary setback. This is not the end of the journey. It's a temporary setback, and that is what gave me, in my mind, the strength to sort of deal with the consequences. And 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 you know what I used to say, and I I I didn't I haven't thought of this in a while. But I used to say, whatever happens, I'm still going to wake up, and I'm going to be alive. I'm going to eat. It's not going to kill me. It's just going to be extremely uncomfortable. And that takes the sting out of it because if you think about it, yeah. you know, no matter how bad things are, you're still here. Right. And as long as you're here, there's an opportunity to recover. Yeah.
0: yeah. It, it reminds me of uh, Les Brown says that uh, if you're going to fall down, make sure you fall down, on your be- fall down on your back because if you can look up, you can get up. <laughs> That's right.
2: And I just think it's, a, it's you know, you've got to kind of tune out what other people say because Because a lot of people are afraid. And and and, you know, there's a reason why that term the one percent was born is I think that the people that are successful that at that higher echelon, they tune out all of these people that say, Don't do this, don't don't reach for that, don't reach beyond yourself, don't don't aspire to be more than what you are, you know, and they tune all of that out and they do it anyway. And I think that uh, that's a lesson that um, I've learned over the years. And, um, and listen, during Omnimedia and everything, this didn't happen by osmosis. <laughs> you, know, you know it's not like a sea monkey you know i just added water and next thing you know i had a company
1: it wasn't an overnight success
2: no i worked my ass off and and i continue to work my ass off and i do everything i i'm involved in every part of the company from the higher level decision making to the to vacuuming the rugs in the office i still do that you know so you have to know your business and you have to have a vested interest in yours in your own success and that adage, nobody cares about your business like you do, is true. But if you surround yourself with good people, and I have, then they will help you be successful. And you lead from the front and, right. and set that tone. And, um, and I think that that is, uh, I don't know, I, I, maybe it's my age speaking, but I'm not sure that today's younger generation really are retaining that. There's such an entitlement of like, I just want to be the boss, you know, right away.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so I think this is a great segue because um, I definitely want to give you the opportunity to, to plug Doran omni media what is um, you know what is the objective with Doran omni media? What are you trying to do with queer radio and and gaycation and and now the eagle Oh thank you for asking well, a couple of things first of all, from a business and I'm, this
2: is a two part thing there's a personal part and a business part. From the business part is you have to structure um, your business in such a way that it gives your uh, gives you the best opportunity to grow and succeed. If you don't lay a good foundation, you're screwed. Period. The mm-hmm. first storm that comes by, your house is going to get leveled. So, so you know, creating the infrastructure of, of you know of of your business is critical. Conceptually, you know, I didn't start out to to launch KWIR Radio or or um, or pride Flight. I mean you don't I don't think about those in advance it just sort of as you take a step forward um, as you take a step forward things sort of reveal themselves and you see opportunities and you say oh I'm gonna do that. Well when I had the newspaper I had gay Cation magazine and of course you know you go to conferences and you realize that digital publishing is doing this and and uh, and social media is doing that and all of that you sort of say wait a minute now, for me, I immediately recognized there was a vacuum. First of all, there was not any quality LGBT content on the radio, right? Mm-hmm. Everything was sort of um, a character of the gay community. So, you know, the, the flamboyant gay guy or the drag queen or this or that or whatever. And I thought, well, where's the content for people like me and Joe? You know, hardworking gay couples we have a daughter by the way we have two grandkids we were doing that long before it was popular Mm. and um you know and so so where's content for us what 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 are we interested in well i'm interested in learning about news and commentary and you know i'm not far left i'm not far right i'm more common sense and the tagline for my radio show is your sane radio obsession Mm. so we i i really am trying to bring some of that that common sense perspective well I kind of figured that I looked at a lot of gay content on the radio is horrible, and I'm, I apologize for sounding like Donald Trump there. <laughs> at home. You New haven't York said huge. Thing, yet, is so. It's a horrible disaster, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, and I realized, you know, wait a minute, we're gay. We're supposed to do fabulous stuff. We're supposed to do great quality stuff. Why is this crap on the radio? And um, so Steve Thompson, I give him credit, and I brainstormed, and we said, listen. There's nothing out there. There's nothing out there that we can align ourselves with. So let's create it, and so that's what we did, and we created it. And I came up with a KWIR um, radio, and we realized that it was a it was a way that straight people would say, "Hey, we're listening to KWIR radio, this great show on KWIR radio," and they wouldn't even realize (laughs) that that KWIR meant queer.
0: Right,
2: (laughs) and that's what we wanted. We wanted something that was not going to be in your face offensive. And so then I started to Google, um, internet radio networks. And I saw that there was some shows that had, you know, they had multiple shows grouped together and they called themselves a network, but they weren't really a network, you know? And so I, I said, I'm going to use, I'm going to create an actual network and we're going to, we're going to do the infrastructure and, and create the infrastructure, which is what we've done. And I spared, um, uh, I, he, I I'm not going to spare any expense with the bones of creating that network. Now, as you know, there were some ups and downs and some unforeseen challenges. And it took me a little while to regroup because I'm not really a techno person. You know, that's mm-hmm. something I rely on someone else to do. And, um, and so, uh, once I figured all of that out, I, it, I now have a better understanding. So the, the reason why KWIR appealed to me was I can promote that I have something that no other fledgling network has. I have multiple media uh, platforms that I can promote that that entity on at no cost to my bottom line. So I immediately put full page ads in my newspaper, there's going to be a full page ad in the January issue of Gaycation magazine, I can post it on Rainbow Tourism, I can put it on Pride Flight, I can add it and get co-sponsors and I can do all these different things leveraging my already established relationships. Um, You know, to to help launch that in a strong way. And that's what I'm doing. And so that's how KWIR was born. And then I had magazine is the same. Same thing is I have a big belief. I don't believe in waiting for market share. I believe you take market share. If you want to be dominant in your market, then you figure out a way under the radar to while your competition who is normally bloated and slow moving to become you have to become nimble and be able to make decisions quickly and that's what i did and so here's a, fu- a fun fact gaycation magazine went from nothing to within the first year being the second um the second uh gay travel magazine in the country
0: <laughs> wow
2: we leapfrogged over everybody else and people thought we were this big company they didn't realize it was joe and me in a, in a, the back seat of the car putting out the magazine
0: <laughs> in a hotel room in circus circus <laughs> that's right
2: and so, but that's that's the nature of today's market so when as all of these things started to develop i realized you know i can't wear so many hats like i can't be the ceo of rainbow tourism i can't be the ceo of of gaycation or the publisher of gaycation the publisher of of now the Eagle and all of these other things, it was too many, it was too much. You know, for most of the company, it was only two people, <laughs> Joe and I. Everything else was either 1099 or contracted. So now, um, what I I had to do is I had to actually take the expense of hiring and managing editor for Gaycation Magazine, and I am very generous with how I structured the deal. I gave them ownership in the in the publication and uh, and same for the you know for the newspaper and they run the day-to-day operations and so now what i did was i created Doran omni media as my holding company that that is what i run so i only deal with the editors i don't deal with with the day-to-day production things of putting out the newspaper or or putting out vacation magazine. and rainbow tourism is on is all internet based i don't do anything it makes a gr- good amount of money and i don't do anything we get commissionable revenue we get um okay well i'm not exactly sure of how the technical thing uh, commissionable revenue when people book stuff and then we get affiliate revenue because it gets so much traffic and then we get advertising revenue i don't have to do anything i just every once in a while i transfer money out of the paypal account (laughs) (laughs) um, but for the newspaper well gaycation's a fun magazine i mean who doesn't like travel right, right. Mm-hmm. the newspaper is a gay newspaper in the middle of indiana it is a lightning rod i've had people tell me i was satan that uh they reported me to the interpol and the white house and everything <coughs> else you know because they don't whatever it's a different kind of animal and i'm very happy to be on the backside of that operation as the business part of it and let the managing editor who is deep roots in the community be the bearer of of most of that so Doran Omni Media was born out of that necessity to sort of congeal everything if you will um, you know so that I could manage it a lot more effectively nice. I hope that answered your question
1: it yeah. did yeah I think it's very interesting I think anybody that's thinking about getting into publishing or, or starting their own company I think these, these are great insights to glean to um, on you know, how you progress and it sounds like what I'm getting from you is is you know, you just keep taking a step forward and Opportunities to present themselves. You consider whether or not you want to take them, or not, can and I, then you take the right ones.
2: Can I can I give you a, um, something that um, someone told me years ago, and it's a kind of a biblical reference, and not that I'm overly religious, but I think this is extremely important in business. You know, when Moses led the people, the Israelites out of Egypt, right, and they got to the Red Sea. The movie shows that you know uh, Charlton Heston held up his staff and the seas parted. But the real translation of that story is, is God said, send your priests forward. And before the soles of their sandals hit the water, I will part the sea. And the lesson there is that he wasn't just going to say, hey, Israelites, you hang out on the shore and I'll park the sea and make it easy for you. He wanted them to take a step of faith. And once they took that step of faith, then he acted. And so I've always believed truly that, that if you wait on the shore and you wait for opportunity to happen or you wait for your number to come up or your ship to come in or wherever you want to call it, you're doomed to fail. Mm-hmm. You have to step forward, and, and and take that step forward before things, you know, before things happen. Even if you have no idea where you're going or how it's gonna act, Do you know, how many times I took that step, I'm like, I have. Joe would be like, "What are you doing? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea." And and you just take that that step forward. And so you know that's why when you mentioned earlier, when people say, "Oh, you're lucky," or they say you're lucky, luck has nothing to do with it. Nothing. Right. It has it, it has the one thing that luck does have to do with it is that you're lucky to be alive and you're lucky to have the opportunity to at least, you know, um, at least uh, take that step forward. That that that. Yes, I will concede that that is luck. Everything else is hard work, faith and overcoming your fear and over and on top of that, overcoming other people's fears.
0: Right. You know, John and I are. Um are big believers, or we follow the law of attraction in that you have to you have to believe and you have to think about what you want. Um, but we don't just stop there. Um, like you said, you can't just sit there and wait for your ship to come in because if you do, it's going to sail right past you. And uh, so we believe that not only do you need need to consciously think about something, believe that it's going to happen, but you have to be actively working for it. And it's when you're actively working for it is when those opportunities present themselves and you're able to see them. Most people go around, the, we feel that most people go around looking for the easy opportunities, but the problem is, is no opportunities are easy. Opportunities. No, and, and if they
2: are easier, they are few and far
0: between, trust, trust me. Right. Yeah. You well,
2: know, I mean, if that was the case, I would have won mega millions already. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: right. <laughs> Yeah, we keep playing and we never win. No, we don't play.
2: And I always, and you know what? On a, talking about that for a second, if you don't mind, sure. I don't know about you guys, but I always think, like, I always sit and I imagine, what is it like? What does it feel like when you have that ticket and all your numbers match? What does that feeling feel like? You know, wow, I just won $30 million or $300 million. I went, I mean, what does that feel like? Yeah. Of course, I'm probably never going to know, but I just—I still wonder. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, there have been so many studies that show that people who do come into that kind of money it ends up, you know, ruining their lives. So, I, David and I—I I think every now and then, when when the lottery gets large enough, we start to fantasize of what it would feel like, but we've never purchased a ticket, and the fantasy is more fun, I think, than. Than anything, right.
2: yeah. I never spend more than twenty dollars ever. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I went into one place and this lady was buying. I don't know. She had several hundred dollars. She was buying tickets, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, no, I don't want the, that money that bad. Right. <laughs> I'm, you know, because that's a couple of mochas at Starbucks, <laughs> right? Right. And that's it. So, but
0: yeah, yeah I um, yeah. I I don't know what that feels like, and I, like I said, I don't think I ever will. Right. We prefer to fantasize and. Uh, dream about things that we can actually achieve. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Know, our own 30 no, wrong million. Fan- There's nothing wrong with fantasizing.
2: There's nothing wrong with dreaming. But you also have to think in practical terms of your daily life. Right. You know, and the and I, you have to, you have to, in my mind, I've always said that I have to have my home base safe and sound. So you have to have a place to live. You have to have food. You know, you have to have the basic stuff. And and I, I think when we lost that deal with Pine Ridge and we lost our house, it was so destabilizing for me because I've lost my safe place. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said, I will never jeopardize my safe place ever again in any business transaction, ever. Interesting. You know, that, that to me was the most unnerving of anything. Everything else I could deal with but losing my house was like, wow, I, I don't know what to do.
1: But you've proven that you can overcome that, too, because you went through it. Yeah.
2: yeah, you can overcome anything. I mean, in in the end, it's only a house. Right, right. You know, right. it's only a building. Right. You know, but – and here's another thing, too, you guys, that 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 most people don't talk about in business. You know, being gay in, biz, in business, in complicated business, you know, it's a little bit easier in some industries. But in the industry that I was in and some of the things that we were involved in, you know, as soon as they found out you were gay, there would be these, you know – right-wing religious homophobes that would scuttle the deal because they didn't want to deal with a bag or they, or, or they immediately thought that you were going to be weak in your negotiating position. So you have to overcome all those layers too. And that's why you have to have your center. You have to be strong in yourself in, 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 you know, in, in achieving that. And not everybody. Here's another thing. I remember one time I was sitting in Starbucks and I was talking with this this business associate, and there was this guy behind the bar, behind the counter, and he had tattoos everywhere, and he had a nose ring, and he had like green hair, right? And he was like, I'd say in his late 30s, maybe early 40s. And I thought to myself, when is he going to grow up and clean up, and, you know, and is this where he wants to be, you know, whatever? My friend looked over at me and said, DJ, maybe he is happy exactly where he is. <laughs> and 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 your definition of success does not necessarily have to translate to his definition of success and it gave me some perspective that that just because i can't sit still or i want to achieve this or i want to do this does not mean that somebody that doesn't want to do that is any less successful there is no there is no right or wrong you find your own success you find your own happiness and if you're lucky enough to have that, I don't care if you're a barista or a CEO of multiple uh, companies, you're going to be happy.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. That's 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 great. We thoroughly, thoroughly believe that success is what you define it, not what the dollar amount says, or the home or house that you have, or, or car. Right. And you know, listen, m- nobody nobody
2: takes it with them. You know, <laughs> right. at the end of the day, nobody. It's not going with you. So you know to me is I don't attach that kind of value to someone, um, based on the house they have or the money they have or what they can do for me. You know, if I go visit your house and, and God forbid for both of you, but if I go, visit <laughs> house, uh then, you know, I go there to see you. I could care less whether I'm sitting on a milk crate or, uh, you know, a leather couch from restoration hardware.
1: Right. Right. Well, maybe we'll have to, Put you to the test. <laughs> you might have.
2: It. You might have. It. Probably like Joe better
1: than me anyway. He's quiet. He's respectful. He's clean. You're a loud New Yorker, and he has a lot of hair. <laughs> well, That's awesome. I think this has been a, a great, um, great discussion. I think there's going to be there's a lot of information that I think our audience can glean from this. So we we want to thank you for, for for giving us your time. I know that you're very busy, and we, so we appreciate the time that you gave us. Um, You're
2: more than welcome. It was absolutely a pleasure to meet and chat with you guys. Absolutely, and
1: we would definitely love to have you back. Maybe leading up to or after you get back from Pride Flight, and so we can hear all about that and uh, share that with our audience as well. Absolutely, anytime. You know,
2: you just you just let me know, and I'm I'll be here. I'll be. Uh, I have plenty of stories. Believe me, I didn't <laughs> scratch like the surface.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we'll definitely have to have you back. So thank you so much. You're Thank very you. welcome.
2: You guys have a wonderful evening. Thanks, you Thank too. you, too. Take care. All right, take care. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. Thank you so much, DJ, for your entertaining stories and passion to achieve success. So what do you think? Are you ready? What risks aren't you taking to achieve your success? As Jim Rohn says, if you aren't willing to risk the unusual, you will have to settle for the ordinary. There's absolutely nothing ordinary about DJ and his life being so full. So go ahead. Take the leap. Thanks again for joining us on Queer Money.
1: Okay. We just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at queer.money.
0: Well, I'm not really gay. It
1: <laughs> <laughs> would help me if I had a personal chef who made all my, all my coffee meals for me. Right. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight for
0: dinner. <laughs> <laughs> The other end, I like the butts, so.
1: From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road.